So in terms of the preaching of the word here tonight, uh, we are back in 1 Peter tonight as we are uh, just about every time I'm up here over the last year and a half uh, looking at the last five verses of chapter 3 of 1 Peter verses 18 through 22. And just a quick disclaimer before I, I jump into it, these five verses are kind of notoriously tricky uh, to kind of fully uh, understand and kind of get all the implications of what's being said and, and why it's being said. A lot of scholars and commentators have gone real deep, uh, spent a lot of time and spilled a lot of ink, and even so, there's still a kind of a, di a, a diversity, is what I was trying to say there, a, di a diversity of uh, thoughts and opinions on it. Um, that said, as you, as you guys know, if you've been around for more than a minute, uh, you know that Passages that are tricky are not ones that we like to skip or avoid here at church. We like to go into them and trust that in them we will see the goodness of God and we'll find the gospel even if there's some things that are a little bit mysterious still. So that's going to be a part of tonight as we go along. So all that said, uh, let's stand together. We hear God's word. First Peter. Chapter 3, picking up in verse 18. It says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. This is God's word. Remain standing and let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, you are good. Lord, it is, uh, it is a gift to us to be gathered in your name in this place. Lord, we ask that you would uh, work mightily through your word and through your spirit in this time to do unexpected things for your glory and for our good in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Okay. So, uh, church, this, this was a fun one for me, as I was alluding to just a moment ago. Um, learned a lot of things, was challenged uh, in, in some ways, and um, I hope some of those things come out as we move along. Um, that said, if there are remaining questions that you have uh, by the time I get to the end of this that you feel like, hey, you didn't really talk about this or address that, uh, I'm, I just want to say right at the outset, you know, come talk to me. I definitely welcome further conversation on, on what's going on in this passage. Uh, I even read a quote from Martin Luther, you know, the, the German reformer monk, um, about this passage early in the week that he, basically Martin Luther said, this is a great passage. I still have no idea what it means. And so I'm like, okay, well, this is going to be fun. So, um, so here we go. So as we uh, have traveled along uh, in First Peter, kind of inch by inch, verse by verse, over the last you know year and a half with me, uh, it seems to me that one very clear central purpose for Peter, as he is writing this letter, one of one of Peter's driving passions, we might say, 
is the development of and the forging of, we might say, uh, Christian identity, a sense of who believers in Jesus actually are. And we, we see Peter doing that in this letter as he's going along in multiple ways. Uh, Peter is passionate, I think, about as a pastor and as an apostle, the people of God, knowing who they are, knowing what it means to be united to Christ and what the implications of that are for their, their lives. Uh, just to catch us up or to remind us a little bit for a moment, um, if you don't remember, Peter is writing to a group of people that he refers to right out of the gate as elect exiles. Uh, and these, this is a, a group of people who uh, were at this time certainly uh, a religious minority in the world. And they were often in kind of the best of moments. They were ignored by, by the social structures and by the governments of the Roman Empire. And in more challenging moments, they were uh, deliberately persecuted uh, and oppressed in, in ways that were, were hard and challenging. They, they've experienced that already to some extent. They, as we look back at history, we know they're going to experience that more as, as history marches on and as time marches on. We know also, uh, just in terms of this letter, big picture, that uh, Peter's not addressing just one particular church, one congregation, but it's a regional letter. We see him addressing it to these five different territories in Asia Minor, what is modern-day Turkey, and again, all of these territories under uh, Roman rule, Roman control um, at this time that Peter's writing. So that said, in order uh, for these, these believers, these folks, to live faithfully as disciples of Jesus, I think Peter knows and is convinced that these, these scattered uh, disciples need to know and to believe a few things really deeply about who they are in Christ, their, their identity. And we've, we've seen some of them, and I'll just kind of walk through a few of them uh, by way of review right off the top here. We already mentioned uh, the first thing right out of the gate was that Peter wants these disciples to know at a deep level that they are chosen by God. That phrase, elect exiles, elect can mean chosen as well. And I think that's important. Peter wants these people to know that they're not, you know, they're not d Christians by accident, that it's, it's not by the, just their own, uh, you know, some coincidence or their own strength and willpower that they are followers of Jesus. It's, it's God's plan and purpose. They're chosen elect exiles. Peter stresses that they, uh, these people need to know that, of, um, that all of the saints of the Old Testament and all of the prophets of the Old Testament and all of the ministries and things that we see happening in the Old Testament those are actually uh, a spiritual heritage that these New Testament believers that Peter is writing to get to receive. That all of the, the saints of the Old Testament that we can read about and, and learn their stories, those are uh, spiritual ancestors of this church. Even uh, as many of these people to whom Peter is writing are probably Gentiles, he's saying, hey, welcome to the family. This is your heritage. These are your ancestors in the faith. I think Peter uh, furthermore wants... Uh, these disciples to know about their identity, that they are indeed, we, we saw this a while back, called to be holy, and that holiness, a call to holiness, isn't just and wasn't just, you know, about legalism or moralism in some sense, but there's, there's this call to holiness because their Father in heaven is holy, 
And so it's like parent, like child, right? We image our father because our, our, our heavenly father is holy. The children, we, his children, seek to be holy in, in what we do as well. That's a key piece of the Christian identity as also. It goes on. There's been multiple riches in in First Peter. I think of uh, the place where he's talking about them being living stones, being a, uh, built up as a spiritual house, so that God can be honored and worshipped among them together corporately. And of course, that this great uh, run in uh, chapter two, verses nine and ten, about being the chosen race, the royal priesthood, the holy nation, a people who are God's own possession, His cherished cherished possession to proclaim his excellencies in the world. All of these things, just bullet by bullet point, they're all about the identity of of the Christian, who we are by grace and through faith. And so all that, as we come and kind of begin to try and sort through what's going on in verses 18 through 22 here tonight, chapter 3, I'd say that at least one thing that we can know right away, immediately, straight out of the gate, is that Peter's underlying purpose here in these particular verses, once again, is still to equip the saints. He's still wanting to uh, continue to bolster this sense of Christian identity among those who would be receiving this letter and to give them this resilient kind of identity in Christ that they would know who they are rooted in Jesus and that they would have an identity that is built to last, that is, that is built to withstand whatever trials and tribulations and struggles might come at them. He wants them to have this rich faith identity, that they be suited and clothed for the journey that is to come, whatever that journey might bring. So the question, I think, then, becomes, naturally, how, how is Peter doing that? In these verses, how is he equipping them, equipping the saints and kind of bolstering this, this sense of identity in these particular verses? I think if I had to just give, a, give an attempt at an answer to that question myself, the answer would be that I think the people of God are being equipped here in this passage first and foremost by Peter's focus on and his attention to what I'm going to call the, the ultimate triumph of Jesus. It's the triumph of Jesus, and it's, it, we see this in two ways, I think, in the text. The triumph of Jesus as Savior, and also the triumph of Jesus as King. We see both of those kind of bookended in this passage. And those two realities have profound implications on our Christian identity. There's spillover. If Jesus is Savior and King, those impact us, who are his people. We get to know ourselves, if Jesus is king, we get to know ourselves as sons and daughters of the king. If Jesus is a savior, we get to know ourselves, even if we have and are sinners, runaway sinners from our good God, we get to know him as the redeemer and the one who comes after us and gets us and saves us. As I thought on these things this week and kind of chewed on them for myself personally, uh, I began to realize that I think one of the the struggles and one of the problems that that we have in the world, uh, certainly big picture outside of the church, but also I think in the church, um, 
I know, just looking at myself, one of the problems I have in my own heart often is that I am more prone in the midst of struggles and doubts and questions, temptations, all of these things, I'm more prone to look inward at myself than I am to look outward and upward at my Savior and my King. And I think one of the impacts of this passage is that it is calling us to look outward and upward to our Savior and to our King and less looking inward. Find truth and grace in Him. So let's dive into these two, uh, these two kind of labels for, for Jesus here for just a couple moments here. Looking, uh, if, if you're with me, you guys still, we're tracking? Okay. Uh, so in verse 18, especially, we see this, what I'm calling is the, the triumph of Jesus as Savior, especially. We read uh, in, verse, in eight, verse 18, like I just said, that for Christ also suffered the righteous for the unrighteous. We might ask, why, Peter? And he says, so that he, Jesus, might bring us to God. So the triumph of Jesus as Savior, essentially, I think, is this. It's that as the righteous one, Jesus himself brings us, the unrighteous ones, to God. And, and the gospel in that, the good news for our hearts and minds here today, is that Jesus, when Jesus as the righteous one brings us, the unrighteous ones, to God, in and through the gospel, it is not for judgment and condemnation and for wrath, but it is for oneness, it is for reconciliation, it is for peace and adoption into his family. I think that is the triumph of Jesus as Savior. Jesus himself tells us about his own mission in the the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, uh, and verse 10. Jesus says that he, as the Son of Man, came to seek and to save the lost. It's a very simple statement about Jesus, about his own ministry and what he was about and why he was there, to seek and to save the lost. And that is what Jesus did in his earthly life. That is what he is still doing through his Holy Spirit. Jesus lived the the perfect law-abiding life that we could not live. He did die the death that he did not deserve for us in our place. And, of course, he rose again to life in triumph for our justification. The righteous for the unrighteous. That is Jesus' triumph as Savior. Jesus saves. Amen? Amen. But, of course, this, uh, we need, uh, we're going to go down the rabbit hole for just, just a moment here. Because if we're talking about being saved, Jesus as a Savior... There's a bit of a catch here in the text. And the catch is, what exactly does Peter mean here when he speaks of this place in the text where he says baptism, which corresponds to this, we'll get to that more in a moment, now saves you, now saves you. Baptism now saves you. Do we have a problem with this? Uh, I was thinking about it this week. You know, if we read this uh, just with our... A lot, at least for me, speaking for myself, 
you know, with kind of our base level Christian uh, lens on and interpretation, um, we're, we're going to read this and we're going to uh, see that there's a conflict here between salvation that is by grace through faith. I think a bit, uh, you know, if you've been around the church here for a while and if you've been around on a Sunday where we had a baptism, then you would know that whether it's, it's a big person or a little person that we're baptizing and have that, that joy and that privilege together, um, you, you would know that one of the things that we, we always are pretty careful about saying, and most of the time it's Josh, occasionally it's been me, Josh says, you know, explicitly, you know, bap- baptism doesn't save anyone. Have you guys heard, that, heard us say that? So then, okay, so who's, who's right, who's wrong? You know, are we uh, on point and Peter's wrong here, or is Peter on point and we need to get, like, the boot to the side here? What, what's, what's happening? And so, grappled with this a bit this week, I have an answer that uh, comes in two parts here for a few moments. And uh, the two-part answer here has to do with kind of a, a range of meaning, meaning and a nuance with this word, save, and then also uh, with kind of talking about the importance of context. Uh, And I don't know if this answer will be satisfying to you, or again, this could be something you want to keep chewing on with me or in other places, and that's that's great. But um, I'll just dive into it for a second here. Uh, When it comes to a range of meaning, first and foremost, for this word save, we find that the word save in Greek is a lot like uh, a lot of words that we have in English where they have, depending on what's going on, you can take them and, and mean uh, different things by them. You can use them in different ways. Uh, so, for example, uh, I thought of the word run this week. Right? So, when I, when I say the word run, you might initially um, intuitively kind of think of, okay, run is physical exercise. I'm running a marathon. That's, that's where my mind typically goes. But you could also talk, use that word run and think about, um, you know, you might say, hey, I'm helping to run this marathon. And what you'd be saying and meaning in that instance is not so much uh, that you're doing physical exercise, exercise, but that you're helping to, like, manage it and to make sure it, it hap- happens properly and, uh, you're, you know, it functions well. Even more so, you could talk about run in terms of something uh, being poured out or leaking or tearing, right? Like my nose, I don't like it when my nose is running. So one word, same word in English, run, and yet these different nuances of meaning depending on uh, the context and how you're using it. And so what I'm seeing and thinking on this week is that this word save here in the text is actually a similar situation. And... For me, it was, it was a fascinating thing to kind of dive into, to look especially at the first two instances of uh, how the word save is used in um, the book of Matthew, actually. So we look at this word, this Greek word, sozo, is how I would say it. Um, and the first time we see that word pop up in the Gospel of Matthew is chapter 1, verse 21. And the context here is that uh, an angel has appeared to Joseph and he's talking about what uh, has happened with Mary and what is going to happen with Mary. Verse 21, we pick up and it says, Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will, there's the word, save his people from their sins. 
And in my mind, this is kind of the, the classic Christian version of the word save when we think of what it means. It's kind of save from sins, save from wrath here. That's the first time it appears in Matthew. We can move on, though. See, the second time this word is used in the Gospel of Matthew is chapter 8. It's a different context here. This is the moment where there's this great storm on the Sea of Galilee. The wind, the waves are crashing. There's a lot going on. Who can tell me what Jesus is doing while all this is happening? He, he's asleep, right? The disciples, Jesus, they're on the boat in the middle of the storm. Jesus is asleep. The disciples are anything but asleep. They are uh, really scared, freaking out. And so verse 25 says, And they went and woke him, saying, the word again, Save us, Lord, for we are perishing. And so, same word, and yet a different nuance. In my mind here, the nuance here is one of save us, not necessarily from sin or from wrath, but save our physical lives. Save us from death and dying. And so, there's this range, range of nuance, range of meaning with these words. And I think that comes to play as we look at what's happening in 1 Peter and how, how Peter is using it. So that's kind of the first piece, this range of meaning for that word save. The second piece of this argument and, and working through this is this uh, centrality of context. The importance, you know, in, in seminary, the, the phrase that always uh, circled around, swirled around was context is king, was what everyone said. And then some people would object and say, no, Jesus is king. And then we say, okay, fine, context is really important, um, which is true. So uh, what we see here then in, in 1 Peter, as we look at the context of this, this statement that Peter makes about baptism, we see context both before and after. And the, the before context here in 1 Peter in this instance is Peter talking about Noah and the ark and the flood that we read about in Genesis 6 through 8. I'm really going down the rabbit hole with this. Are, are you guys like, is anyone, are you, are you still with me? Are there heartbeats? Okay, we're not flatlined. Okay. All right. I'm going to keep going then. Um, so Genesis, that, that's the, the before context, Genesis 6 through 8, the flood, that's what Peter's talking about. And then the after context of this statement, Peter is talking about um, how baptism saves you, he says. And he goes on and he says, not as a removal of dirt from the body, or some translations might put it filth from the flesh, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Put all that together, that is some rich context on both ends of, of the spectrum around this statement, and uh, it's a lot to kind of chew on and to sort through, but my bottom line, just kind of to try and land the plane, is that based on the, ra the range of meaning here that we, we see in the, in the scriptures, and on the, the context that we see in this particular verse, my conclusion is that what Peter is saying here about <clears throat> Christian baptism is that our baptisms, yours and mine, really can save us. But what, what our baptism is saving us from, I think, based on the context, is, is, is from a, a guilty or a defiled conscience. It's from a condemned conscience before the Lord. 
It's what he says, right? Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection. I think that is the sense in which this word is being used here. In other words, to make this more real and to bring it home, you know, when I sin and fail, uh, that becomes an opportunity for all kinds of things to happen in my own head. When I sin and fail, it becomes an opportunity also for uh, our enemy, the accuser of the brethren, to, to, to pile on and to attack. And I think that one of the ways that Peter is encouraging us that we can kind of fight back here against these things and, and seek that good conscience is to appeal to God, to the triumph of God, to the triumph of God's salvation that is signed and sealed, represented and declared in our Christian baptism. And it is through that as we, we sink into again and afresh the reality of our Christian baptism and all that it means and represents that we begin to regain that good conscience. It's one way of doing that. We, we, uh, we relive the experience and the truth of the gospel through the baptism that we have received, the washing, the cleansing, and all that is represented there. Verse 21. And so my, my question for digging in a little bit more, application here is, have you guys ever thought about your baptism in that way? Have you ever thought about the fact that you could, you could in some way, I don't know if this sounds weird, but leverage in a spiritual sense the weight the power of your baptism to fight for a good conscience before the Lord? I think we can. I think we should, maybe. So that we can say if there's a moment where we're weak and where we're feeling condemned by our own thoughts, we can, we can push back and say, no, I am a baptized believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I have been washed and cleansed. Whether that happened when you were an infant or whether you were 19 or 25 or yesterday. When, you know, Satan piles on and accuses us, like I was saying a moment ago, we can say, no, away from me, right? I'm a child of the living God, baptized into the, the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That is my identity. And I'm sinking into that truth in the midst of these struggles and trials, temptations. Of course, it's also, I think, contextually, if we look at what's going on here, really important to notice that, that Peter makes this statement and he says that all of this happens, that we are saved, he says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is, that is fundamental. There is no Christianity without the resurrection. There is no uh, meaning to baptism. There is no baptism. There is no triumph if there is not the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if he is not, not raised. Think of Paul and his statements in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he says, you know, if Christ has not been raised, then we are of all people most to be pitied, and that we are still in our sins. So resurrection also is, is this key piece to understanding what's going on here. So I think that that is it. We see the triumph of Jesus as Savior as, as Jesus brings us to God, not for wrath and for condemnation, but for adoption, for reconciliation, for oneness. And we see the triumph of God as Savior as we, we experience, relive, sink into the truth that is represented, signed and sealed 
portrayed and declared in our baptisms. And if you haven't been baptized, it is never too late. Right? So that is Jesus as Savior. Much more briefly, because I think time is getting on, we see Jesus in his triumph as Savior. We see Jesus in his triumph as a king in this passage as well. This is a key piece of our Christian identity as well. We read in verse 22 that after the resurrection, we see Peter talking about how Jesus ascends to, his, uh, ascends to the right hand of the Father, the heavenly throne, the right hand of the Father Almighty, where you know, we profess this when we say the creed together, from where he will come to judge the living and the dead as king. He rules and he reigns in triumph. From that position on high, the right hand of the Father. Again, I think of the words of Paul connecting here to what Peter is saying, where Paul writes in Philippians about Jesus, about his work as a humble Savior, but then also as an exalted king. Peter writes, Philippians, I'm sorry, Paul writes in verse uh, 8 through 11 of chapter 2. He says, and being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, humility, even death on a cross. The turn, verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is Jesus being worshipped as the triumphant king. What he is due, what is right for who he is, risen and reigning. Do you know Jesus in that way? Do you know him as your triumphant king? Is your soul equipped with that truth as part of your identity? Again, as I said at the outset, a son, a daughter of the, of the king of the universe. Jesus is king, and someday everyone will know it, and every knee will bow. There is, uh, I'm aware, I, I, I'm at the point where I think I'm going to kind of land the plane, but I'm, I'm aware that there's a lot of this text, as, as I said at the beginning, that I haven't, full, I haven't addressed, like the whole there's a lot more that could be said about the spirits in prison and, uh, you know, what's going on in the days of Noah and the ark and all of these things. Like, what's going on in some of that? It's kind of like, I don't know if, if you read that. Did you just glaze over? Because you're like, I have no idea what's happening here right now. Like, it's easy to do that, I think, in that passage. I, and I'm not, I don't think there's time to really dig into that and do that justice right now. Um, but, because I want to take us to the Lord's table and, and time is running out. But, uh, I, I would say just briefly, I would recommend the ESV study Bible notes. If you have an ESV study Bible, I think they're helpful in terms of just kind of picking through uh, three potential views on that and helping us process. So look at those notes. I can get them to you if you, if you need them. If you, um, and again, I offer up uh, conversations with me or Josh if you want to keep having, uh, chewing on some of these things and especially that stuff that I didn't really touch on as, as strongly here. Um, but I want to conclude, I want to wrap us up with just really one final encouragement 
going back to baptism. And my encouragement in, in regards to baptism for all of us here tonight is let's continue to sink into the reality of our baptisms as individuals and as a community. Whether, whether you were baptized young, whether you were baptized yesterday, whether that day is still to come for you. Let's sink into the reality of our baptisms uh, because that day is significant as we see the gospel uh, kind of played out in drama before us. Do you know the date of your baptism? You should, you should find out the date. See if you can, if you, do, you know, lost track of it in the timeline of your life. See if you can find some way to get it back and, uh, you know, find someone who knows it. If not, that's fine. You know, Jesus works outside of time and space. But how cool to celebrate the day of your baptism, just like you celebrate your birthday. Like, hey, this is a significant day to, to sink into that reality as you, you uh, know Jesus as your triumphant Savior and King. I had forgotten uh, my, my date um, this week. I had to look back and dig into it again. It was uh, August 11th, 2002 was when I was baptized. Um, Folsom Lake. Anyone know Folsom Lake? Yeah. It was a rebel. It, didn't, it wasn't in a church. Uh, a lot has changed since then for me in life, the world. And yet what remains consistent is Jesus is still a risen, reigning, triumphant Savior, triumphant King. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, God, thank you for your kindness and grace to us. Lord, thank you that one of the ways in that we continue to experience your kindness and grace is through this meal, this uh, table, Lord, that we are about to symbolically partake of and, and drink of and eat of deeply spiritually now. Lord, feed us and nourish us in this time, we pray. Amen.